Welcome to the Jay Kim Show. This is your host, Jay Kim. I am an investor, author, and fitness entrepreneur. And for the first time in Asia, I sit down with the world's most brilliant minds in business, investing, and entrepreneurship. You'll learn all the secrets, strategies, and formulas to becoming a successful entrepreneur directly from the masters. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insight to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. So when I was preparing to launch the J. Kim Show, I did a little bit of research on the podcasting market in Asia, and I wanted to see which podcasts were out here, which ones were successful. And it turns out that there aren't very many podcasts at all in Asia. There's only two in China and one other podcast, which is called Analyze Asia. So Analyze Asia is run by Bernard Lung, who is our guest today on the show, and it's been around since 2014. So it is pretty much the only substantial podcast in Asia. I reached out to Bernard because I wanted to introduce myself ahead of the launch and basically say, you know, look, I'm starting a podcast. Do you have any pointers, tips for me? What's the podcasting environment like out in Asia? So it turns out that Bernard is actually a very interesting entrepreneur himself. He's done a number of ventures in the past. He currently works in a corporate role at Singapore Post. His wife works at a startup, a hardware startup, that does uh, adjustable standing desks, which is also quite interesting. And Bernard is a graduate of Singularity University, which is something that we've talked about in the past with show guest Kent Langley. So all-around interesting guy, a very nice guy, and I'm very glad I connected with him because now it's me and Bernard. We're probably the only two launching podcasts or doing podcasts consistently right now in Asia, which is a trend that I hope changes in the future. And I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of growth in podcasting in Asia. All right, let's jump right in. Hi, Bernard. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jay Kim Show. We're very happy to have you on. Mm. Thank you for having me on the show, Jay Kim. Uh, been a pleasure. Great. Um, so the reason that uh, we're connected, well, I mean, we got connected through a sort of a mutual uh, contact connection of ours. But uh, one of the reasons why I was very interested in connecting with you is because your podcast, Analyze Asia, is one of the only podcasts in Asia, uh, for that matter. And uh, when I was doing some research regionally before I launched my podcast, I was basically looking around to see who else uh, were, was in the ecosystem that, you know, I could talk to and I could connect to. And, and, uh, and it turns out that you're basically the only one. There's a couple that are doing China-focused podcasts um, in that space. But as far as Greater Asia goes and, and sort of the sa- similar themes to what I look at, you're the only one. So I'm very happy to connect with you. You obviously have uh, much more experience podcasting than I do. You've been around for several years now. And so, uh, but we'll get into all that. Anyways, thank you for coming on the show. So why don't you give us a little bit of background of yourself? I know you have done multiple different things and you, it seems like you have a bunch of things that you're working on at, at one time. So uh, why don't you give us some background, please? Okay. My name is Bernard Liang. I have a day job as the head of the post office network and digital services. And I'm also on the executive leadership team in Singapore Post. So for today, I'm actually speaking in my personal capacity. And so my opinions here does not represent any organization which I work for. So with the disclaimer gone, other than my day job, uh, I have a media hobby project where I founded a podcast called Analyze Asia and spent about five weeks of my time 
working each week for the past two years. I think now we have just reached 165 episodes, and I believe mm. that this is the conversation we want to have. So right. I can tell you a little bit about background myself. So mm-hmm. I started off in academia with a PhD degree in theoretical physics, and my wow. PhD thesis <laughs> was actually looking for experimental signatures of extra dimensions within a cosmic microwave background radiation that's left over from the universe during the Big Bang. That was in Cavendish wow. Laboratory. So after that, I worked in the Sanger Institute on the Human Genome Project, where I used a lot of machine learning techniques to analyze large terabytes of data in 2003. I think um, what I guess I need your audience to appreciate is that um, today when we talk about terabytes of data, it's actually no big deal because a lot of this work has actually been done 10 years before. Before Mm -hmm. now, that we have a lot of data that we can actually start using uh, artificial intelligence to learn about your habits and your consumer behavior as, as well. So I actually enjoyed multidisciplinary academia. So I published in physics, I did biology, I also did economics, where I wrote a very interesting paper on predicting the rise and fall of football managers in wow. Premier League. Okay. And actually, I studied all the leagues. And, and there were some very interesting um, things that actually for football managers is actually pretty simple in, in basic economics and wrote a little few papers on management of innovation ecosystems. I think there's a span between 2003 to 2008. So after that, I actually left academia and decided mm. to go into the startup world. Now, maybe I'm just inspired to make a dent in the universe. So I started right. two companies. So the first one is called Chopbot. It's actually a location-based advertising startup where I raised money from Joey Ito, now the head of MIT Media Lab. And that eventually crashed and burned because we made some real strategic mistakes and it was pretty public. I actually told my failure story publicly because I actually owned an online media site called SG Entrepreneurs, which eventually um, with my co-founder, Gwendolyn Tan, I think a lot of people know her, we sold it to Tech in Asia. Ah, right. Okay, got it. So I have actually done some angel investing work and probably one of my best investments is a company, dating company called Lunch Actually that do both online and offline dating. And that has expanded uh-huh. from Singapore to other parts of Asia, including Hong Kong, where you stay. Right. Yes. So actually, after the period of the failure of Chopbot, I've actually received offers to join other startups as their CDOs. But mm-hmm. I have decided that I'll be the CEO of the next startup that I work on. And also through reflection on my own startup failure, I've also decided that I should learn how to be a better manager with the capability to build, scale, and manage 500 to 5,000 or even greater number of people. So the best place I thought to learn that is going to the corporate world, where they're not as nimble like startups, but I can learn their systems and processes and the things I shouldn't do. Right. Yeah. So I... Interesting. Yeah. So, so you, in, you were the co-founder and CTO of Chalkboard. Yes. But you wanted a... Was it, was it uh, you didn't enjoy the role as a CTO no, no, or no. you just wanted something bigger? No, I, I enjoyed the role. I actually uh, built and architect the entire platform while my right. CEO was actually doing all the fundraising in Silicon Valley because we, we were taking a two-pronged strategy for both Asia and US, which I think we make a mistake on that. I've also covered some of his work, so I did a lot of sales and business development. Mm. So essentially, when I, uh, when I thought that when 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 we failed, I thought about what would I want to do in the next company. And I thought that I want to own that responsibility of being a CEO. Mm. Yes. And I think that one of the things that you go through a failure of a startup is that you have to do things that are very difficult. For example, firing 
people who don't deserve it and actually helping them right. to find a job. Actually, on the day where I fired all my engineers, within 24 hours, I actually found all of them jobs wow. with all the other startups. That was one Good of the... For you. <laughs> yeah. And closing down the company gracefully, which was one of the yep. most important things that I owe my apologies to my investors. So yep. coming back to where I am, right? So I started off as a product manager for a company called Vistaprint. Then subsequently, I decided that I may want to move to the US and I, and I was actually tied between an offer to become a senior product manager in Amazon US and or become a senior executive in Singapore Post. So I mm. took the big risk by taking the Singapore Post job where I get half the pay and twice the responsibility to be a senior <laughs> executive. But well. yeah, it turned out to be the right bet because uh, the former CEO, uh, Dr. Wolfgang Bayer, was a great mentor right. and I've done one of my, some of my best work in the past 3.5 years there from redesigning all the digital properties from the post office to the parcel lockers and subsequently making the first secure authenticated drone delivery where I've become an expert in drone delivery and I have subsequently advised the US postal services and other postal services in Asia in my present role. Wow. So is, is drone delivery actually a part of the Sing Post now? Is that implemented? We actually did a proof of concept mm -hmm. to, uh, to a nearby offshore island, uh, Pulau Ubin. Wow. So, so that was, uh, but what we actually did was something slightly different. What we did was, um, if you think of a traditional postal journey, user journey, is you have the person sender sending the letter and the person mm -hmm. receiving the letter, right? The receiver has a mailbox and a key. So it's your right. form of authentication. So how does mm -hmm. it look in a drone delivery world? So I actually studied everybody's drone delivery videos. Everybody was just flying the drone, drop the package and expect someone to pick it up. So what we did differently from everybody, and I also suspect that that was the reason why we got global press, even from Bloomberg and Fox, was that mm -hmm. we actually create a secure process. So when the drone flies to the destination, the person who is supposed to receive the package turns on the mobile phone and authenticate whether he or she is in that vicinity. Ah. So if the signal is received, the drone will land. Within three minutes, if it doesn't, it flies back to its original location. Yeah, that's great. That's that's like a that's yeah. That's that's like something that you would expect from a Silicon Valley startup that is doing some sort of a drone commercialized drone uh, product, right? And actually, through that process, um, because I was able to convince five government agencies to allow me to do that. So other regulatory bodies, for example, the U.S. FAA, uh, Japan Post, they have come to me for advice on how to think about regulation, etc. On that. Very interesting. And of course, the, probably one of the biggest achievements for Singapore Post was the Alibaba investment to transform mm. the company into a global e-commerce logistics company. So I think that was, right. that was probably, I would say that most of the best work they have done in that uh, three and a half years till now. And I'm still working on the transformation of the post office and also, also building on that. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> you, uh, quite, quite the, uh, high achiever here, uh, Bernard. So in addition to your job as a senior executive there at Sing Post, you also are, are you still an active angel investor? Not exactly, but I have to full disclosure, I invested in my wife's company. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess you have to disclose that yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. your own company as well. Anyway. Yes, that's right. So I've, I've just uh, well. What does what does her company do? Why don't we she, why don't we give her a little plug yeah, here? She well. she builds a smart adjustable standing test called the Autisan.com. She actually ran a very successful Indiegogo campaign, and I think she just started to deliver her desk. In fact, the first shipment all went to Hong Kong. 
Oh man, actually, it's funny you say that, Bernard, because I've been looking for some good. Uh, I mean, they're very they're very popular these days, and it's the new sort of trend right now is uh, these standing desks, elevated desks, the ones that can adjust. You know, you can have it sitting and standing. And I've been looking for 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 one in Hong Kong, actually. So Daniel, did you say your, your wife ships yeah. to Hong Kong? Yes, she ships to Hong Kong. In fact, hers you can actually use the smartphone to control the standing desk. And one of the things she designed it for was to get someone to go into flow. That means to get absolute work-life balance and also productivity at the same goal. So that, yeah. In fact, if everybody probably know the, the open secret is that the, the plug that I always give to my ad on my Analyze Asia podcast or the Ideal Workspace, that was my wife's company. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, so what, what is the name of it again? Altizen.com. Altizen. A-L-T-Z-E-N.com. Okay. Uh, I will link that up in the show notes and I will look at it myself. So there is a Hong Kong uh, site or is it ordering and delivering in Hong Kong? It, you, can, you can order it and then you can deliver. Um, it will deliver to Hong Kong. Got it. Okay, cool. So that's a good little uh, productivity uh, tip for us tool. Okay, so let's move on a little bit. So, okay, uh, your your job is SingPost. Uh, you have a little bit of angel investment now on the side. I guess you have to scale that back now that you're working at a larger organization. I know that you've taught or you still teach uh, quite regularly. Is that right? Um, actually, I don't, uh, but I actually okay, work, you used to. I used to. I I'm now more. I spend more of my time as an entrepreneur in resident for Inside Business School. Mm, okay, right, and that's where you went to business school. Um, no, I actually never do any business school. Oh, okay. so actually, was um, a late professor there who invited me to be an entrepreneur in residence. And truth be told, um, he actually gave me the advice on how to gracefully shut down the company. His name is Patrick Turner. And he inspired a generation of uh, Singaporean entrepreneurs as well. Ah, very interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I'm actually doing my duty as an ERR to honor him. Um, I mm. think one of the things I learned about in life is that um, you have friends when who are actually by your side in the bad times. And Patrick was one of those people who were at my side. And he actually wrote my references for my corporate jobs. Wow. Very nice. Yeah. So that's a good, no, uh, yeah, that's a good relationship you have there. Okay, and so now let's move on a little bit in your background. So I know that you are a graduate of SU, mm. and I think that you know it's funny, Bernard. I just had another guest on my podcast who is actually a faculty member at SU. His name is Kent Langley. I'm not sure if you have met him or uh, while you were there, but he works in uh, exponential technology, exponential uh, organizations and technology. So uh, it was very interesting having him on the podcast. Um, maybe you can tell my audience a little bit about SU, Singularity University, and what made you want to apply there and what your experience was like there. Mm. So after the drone delivery project, I thought that there would be some time I could take out of my daily work to actually think about things. And the, the, the backstory is that I told my former CEO, Dr. Wolfgang Bayer, that um, during the job interview that the next job I'm going to do is to be a CEO of a startup. Right. So a couple of friends have actually told me about Singularity University, about the exponential technologies and the things that they teach there. Mm -hmm. So I decided to take a 2.5-month sabbatical there, of course, with the approval for Singpost. Right. which is located in the NASA AIM Center, Silicon Valley. So I actually wrote my 
uh, application and I was admitted to the prestigious Global Solutions Program, fully sponsored by Google and Genentech in the US right. and spent 10 weeks there. Wow. Now tell me about the application process. It must be extremely, extremely competitive, right? Yes, it's extremely competitive. I, I have a uh, interesting proposition because I was thinking a lot about architecture. Mm. So um, before I actually did the application, I actually read up some of the core ideas of SU. For example, the books by Ray Kurzweil, The Singularity yep. is Near, and Peter yep. Demander's Bold and Abundance. So I came up with an idea about disrupting architecture, and that was part of the application process that you need to come up with an idea that's, that right. is impacting 10 to the nine people. Yes, and so so what that means is essentially uh, this is for the audience because I just went over this myself with with Kent is that you have to essentially the way he was explaining it is you have to positively affect impact one billion people within ten years or less. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that's that's like a major problem, like we're global global shift shifting problem that you're going to solve, right? Mm. So I actually went to the program and um, I I had when well, I'm exposed to thought leaders such as Peter Demandis and Ray Kurzweil. Yeah. And also the ideas of exponential technologies where they teach us a lot on blockchain, CRISPR. You have self-driving cars and mm -hmm. a lot of Arduino technologies. In fact, the late morning you have the lectures and in the evenings you actually do the laboratory technology work. So you laser cut, you, you know, do 3D printing. It was really wow. it was really like the geek's paradise. If you're a geek yeah. myself who loves technology, that's a paradise for you. I right. actually enjoyed the interactions with the faculty and the staff. And actually there were a few big topics that we were debating over the whole summer. So one of them was um, are we living in a simulation because of Elon Musk? And then the second conversation I thought would be much more relevant to today's world is how can we solve technology's displacement of labor? There's 80 of us who have been selected for the program and I have met my fellow classmates who are, some of them who are much more accomplished than myself. So it was very inspirational. But one thing interesting that they did with me that I thought no MBA schools would ever, ever have taught such classes. Mm. Is this cost on human performance? Mm. So I'll, I'll tell you a story. So I used to have heartburn problems due to stress. Right. But since I got back from Singularity University, my job has gone up by 10x, but my stress level had went down to zero. In fact, my doctor recently who went through my medical report was like surprised like all my cholesterol level, all the other medical issues I have has suddenly disappeared. How? How'd you do it? So when they did the human performance, they did a couple of things with us. They did mindfulness. So yes. they, they did meditation. But I think it's, the meditation is not about whether you do one minute or 20 minutes. It's actually you do that very uh, smooth one to three minutes, but you focus a lot on breathing. So they brought in people mm -hmm. from extreme diving to teach us breathing. And right. they teach us a lot on how to compartmentalize our stress. Right. So some of the things that we may think that stresses actually are not that important. Mm. You see, this is this is probably the thing that actually benefited the most from Singularity University. Because, <laughs> um, like I told you, right, I wanted to be a CEO of a startup in the future, right? right? So actually, they have prepared me ready for that now because I'm able to now compartmentalize and think of difficult situations and how to control my stress. Mm, interesting. Yeah, mindfulness is a, is, a, is a big thing right now. It's a big trend. Mm. And it's actually, I, I see the value in it. So I personally am not 
of that much of a meditator or I don't practice that sort of thing very regularly, but I have in the past. And it's a lot of just, uh, like you said, compartmentalization, mind control, being able to really focus on nothing a lot of times. I think a lot of, uh, you know, people, entrepreneurs and high achievers have a problem where, uh, it's some people refer to it as monkey mind, where their mind is just running around at, at a million miles an hour, and they can't bring that down and just focus and and uh, or or unfocus on all that's going on and just fo- you know kind of unplug. So um, that's quite interesting. So that's that was your biggest takeaway. Now in Singularity University, what was the if you don't mind sharing, what was the sort of geographic break breakdown of the of your class? You said there were eighty people in your mm. class. How many? How many from Asia were there? There were about five to six from Asia. Um, inter- interestingly, my wife's uncle, who's a very famous social entrepreneur, was also in the program. Uh, Jack Sim, oh, wow. the founder of World Toilet Organization, and then we have people from sixty-two countries. And one of the biggest difference between the SU program and the rest of the programs is that we have a 50% men and 50% women. Oh. Yeah. That's that's done on purpose. Yeah. They, 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 and they also did a lot of work in making sure that the, the demographic is diverse. Wow. Mm. Very nice. Mm. It's almost like, uh, yeah, well, you know, I was, it, it's, it's basically people that are the smartest people in the world trying to solve the, the largest problems in the world. So, mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very, very interesting to me. Okay. Um, well, thank you for sharing that, uh, Bernard. Yeah. Now l- I want to talk a little bit about, uh, of course the podcast, because that is what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I've just launched mine and I'm excited about the trend of podcasting in Asia, because I think that that is a trend. I mean, you know, as well as I do that podcasts have been around for over a decade globally, very popular in the West in in the States and in Europe and, you know, there are millions of podcasts out there, but funnily enough, there were there are very very little in Asia. So, w- l- tell me just a little bit about how you started Analyze Asia, why you started it, and you know how that developed. Mm. So, someone did ask me why I started the Analyze Asia podcast. So, there's a background to the story. So, in 2008, I've actually worked on an earlier podcast called This Week in Asia, or in short, uh, TWIA where a few mm-hmm. of us from different parts in Asia sat down together and discussed interesting events that happening in that particular week. In fact, Dave McClure was on that show. Joey Ito mm-hmm. was on that show as well. Cool. Um, we usually discussed, uh, that was actually with Dennis Saventus Lim from Malaysia, uh, Michael Smith Jr., who's now a, a VC, venture capitalist mm-hmm. in C+, mm-hmm. and also Michael Fong and John Lim. So we had a lot of fun bantering, but... What, but then the problem was that there were a few problems. One was I was bothered by the quality of the podcast. The sound quality was not good because there were a few of us Skyping in. The, right. the sec- and because also I didn't tell you that I actually had a background in theater. And I used to be <laughs> produce high quality plays on stages during when I was in my PhD in Cambridge. In fact, I was actually offered to produce uh, one of the Shakespearean uh, plays that I actually turned down was one of my biggest regrets. It's like, you know, it's like getting the, the golden ticket to do the biggest production for your life. So well, the same actually goes with digital media products. So I wanted to actually get a high quality podcast, which actually I can consistently build and manage in a proper way. Right. So I decided that because also with the varying broadband speeds in Asia, it was also the sound quality actually degrades mm. over time. So I decided that, okay, we will make a high quality podcast but I will only do a one-to-one interview. 
Right. So I was listening to a lot of podcasts and what I discovered was that there were a lot of interesting technology businesses podcasts that were on, that were there. Like for example, Horace Didius Isimco, uh, Ben Berherens, Techpinions, and also Ben Thompson and James Allworth, Exponent. Yep. Where they actually do a lot of deep dive on companies we know, you and I know, for example, Apple, Google, Facebook, mm-hmm. Amazon, and Microsoft, and maybe sometimes Samsung. So... The question that I, that came to my mind is why can't we have a podcast that actually discuss, dissect, and deep dive into business, technology, and media in Asia, and made by Asians who are involved in the day to day of their respective ecosystems. Right. So I wanted to focus everything in Asia. I think it actually solves the ten to the nine problem because Asia has a four point four billion population. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, and represents about two thirds of the world population, <laughs> and houses at least I think three of the largest emerging markets: China, India, That's right. Indonesia. So I, Absolutely. Yeah. so I decided that, okay, I'm going to cover trends in business, technology, and media in Asia through three channels. One is industry watchers, a correspondence from media who cover Asia as a whole, business leader within the technology or media industry which, who are operating within Asia, and important thought leaders coming from both startup, investor, and business ecosystems. But I have a simple rule. I never interview a startup founder below Series B which is an untold rule, and I probably just revealed it here. Very interesting. Yes. Okay, why is that? Um, Partially because I had another idea for a startup podcast uh, for the future. You're saving that one. (laughs) For later, yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think the key is that I actually wanted to focus a lot more on the day-to-day running of the businesses. For example, one, one, one example I want to talk about is, for example, most of the Asia business giants are pretty opaque to the rest of the world. For example, your Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, Huawei, SoftBank, Samsung, Tata Group, Reliance, and many other famous Asia family businesses. For example, in Hong Kong, you have the Li and Fong, you have uh, Li Kaisheng, you know? So part of the aim was actually to mystify these companies. And it's it's actually much more interesting to talk about the ecosystem because you talk about the infrastructure challenges and also the funding challenges as well and how Mm -hmm. it works. So I like to talk to, for example, Casey Law from Hong Kong about the startup ecosystem in Hong Kong because he, he worked with a lot of startups, right? right? So that was the reason why I didn't want to have interviews with startup founders. But I actually uh, think that it's actually much more interesting to hear the actual businesses which are actually scaling up because there's also uh, people don't really know how to expand into different geographies as well. So part of, I always like to tell people this interesting note, the 10 minutes before the podcast interview and the 30 minutes after the podcast interview are the best parts of the chat because we talk about much more interesting things. It allows me to be able to um, get out of Singapore and talk to and gather intelligence across Asia. Right. Yeah. But I also want to tell you that there's actually a personal reason why I decided to do a podcast like that. Mm. So one of my guests asked me about this and I actually told her that I wanted to leverage the podcast interview to be a better mm. listener. So one of the core traits wow. I often hear of good CEOs is their ability to listen, assessing facts of a situation and make well-informed decisions. So, so by actually using the podcast to talk to people, I actually helped me to listen better. And it also helps me in terms of being a better manager and framing my conversations with my teams at work and even potential prospects who are interviewed for hiring. Mm. So this is one of the reasons that I actually never told people that I was using that to do that. 
You know, you bring up a good point, Bernard, because one of the things that I noticed uh, when I am preparing and, and doing podcasts is, um, you know, conversely, uh, on the flip side, in addition to being a good listener, uh, it also makes you a better speaker. And, you know, public speaking is not one of my fortes, and it's something that I want to improve on. And it kind of makes you get into this mode where you are speaking more eloquently. You don't say, um, or, uh, and, you know, you know, that sort of thing. And you kind of can iron those things out. And then also, I find that when I prepare for, when I know I have a podcast booked, uh, just for example, like, you know, even just for you, I, you know, I did a couple hours of just reading and research. And if there's a few things that I don't know about you, then I'd like to research that, right? And so uh, for some of our, you know, I have, I've had authors on and some entrepreneurs and New York Times bestselling authors and so I'll go in and actually read all of their books and, and, and do s several hours of research to be prepared. And I find that that just keeps me current, you know, it keeps me on the ball and it always forces me to learn something new. So I like that, that you say that about, uh, about listening and I think that it will make you a better CEO. Mm. <laughs> So, okay, so Analyze Asia, that's, uh, and now it's been going on for two years, is that right? You started in 2014? Yep. Okay, and so is your, and you're all around the region, how do you manage your workflow? Uh, and this is more of a personal question because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure this whole thing out myself. Do you do all your editing yourself and, you, and booking and, and marketing of your show? So I actually broke the whole production of the podcast into five stages. So okay. the first is actually the gathering, which I actually email or write to someone to get them on the show. So mm -hmm. of every guest I get onto the podcast, I get nine rejections. So it's a yep. hustling process. Most That's of the right. time I get, I'm very thankful for people who come to my show actually through referral or direct hustling. Yep. So that's the first part. The second part of it is the research bit where I actually research about the guests like you. I mm -hmm. read up, I check out their LinkedIn profiles. If I also watch their YouTube videos, if they have any right. and interviews, past interviews. And I try to frame the questions. That usually takes me about half an hour. Mm -hmm. And after that, put them into a set of questions and send it to them a week before. Right. And then after that, we have the actual recording. So we would use a very basic calendar invite in fact, all my work is done through using a, a project management tool called Asana, mm -hmm. yep. which I'm actually given tasks, and then I will just fulfill that five tasks right. in the five stages. Yep, I've, I've seen Asana. I've used Trello, which is similar. Yes, it's, it's similar. It's, it's yep. the two that you use, right? And then yep. the research material I usually do in Google Docs, and I have actually keep a spreadsheet, like a CRM, where I track every guest I ask to come on the show. Even if they reject me, I'll put down second try, third try. Yep, yep. yep. So you are doing the entire workflow, it's yes, just you. correct. And then after that, wow. there is the editing part, which I spend most of my time. I told you I spend five hours per week, right? So no, Wow, so you, you, you edit everything yourself. Yes, I do. And in fact, Amazing. for Asia podcast, because of the way we speak, we have a different accent. In order to attract an American audience, you need to focus a lot on editing. Right. It came out because of my theater experience as well in the UK where I work with English speakers as well. So, uh, so that takes up most of the time, but I've actually started to automate certain processes. So it's actually, the, one of the things I did was adopt the Japanese craftsman's mentality called Shokunin, where, I, where every stage of the process I've innovated and reduced the amount of time to be more yep. efficient. 
So over the two years, I built out a workflow that actually is less than three to four hours of doing it. Wow. That's still, that's still quite a lot. I mean, and how, how do you have time to do this? I mean, yeah. you have, you're working a full-time job. And... Yeah. So sometimes I do it during lunch. I'll spend half an hour doing it in lunch time. Or um, usually I do it in the weekends where I just get two hours of grace from my wife for yeah. Saturday <laughs> and two hours of grace on Sunday. And then I basically finish the entire editing process. Itself. Amazing. And, and what about booking your guests? Do you batch process those? Like, do you do, I mean, yours is a weekly podcast, mm-hmm. right? So do you, do you do like four in one day and then do you just have them done for the month or is it just on a rolling basis? Um, actually, nowadays I've reached a point where I just plan a month in advance. Mm-hmm. So I will actually send out about eight emails and hopefully all eight will come back. Usually it doesn't happen. About six will come back. And I plan. Um, each week I will get two recordings. I like to stack them together to do the recording so that I have all the files with me. Yep. And then after the editing process, of course, then I go into the publishing process and the distribution process. So are you able to book these? And so one of the challenges mm-hmm. that I found, so my podcast is slightly different than yours because my I have a, a global uh, mm-hmm. guest sort of roster, right? Mm-hmm. So I like to bring a lot of the U.S. Western uh, entrepreneurs and business leaders to expose them to the Asian audience because there's interest. Um, and so so for me, my challenge is booking uh, the time zone because I have to wake up very early or sometimes I stay up late to uh, record episodes. So most of your guests are within Asia, right? So you're, are you able to uh, pop out during lunch and, and get a recording in? Or? Uh, oh, actually... I actually have U.S. guests as well. Mm. So I typically do either very early morning mm-hmm. or late in the evenings. Oh, okay. So just like me then. Okay. Yeah, very similar. In fact, when you proposed this timing to me when we do this recording, it was perfect because that's my rec- <laughs> podcast recording time. Right. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. And then um, we were talking about this earlier mm. uh, before the before we started. Um, mm. Some of your stats, like where where your listeners, mm. audience is from, and and what kind of uh, of of audience you have. Mm. So I've over two years, I've gotten about fifteen thousand subscribers. Wow. Nice. And I have reached about almost 0.3 million, about three hundred k downloads today. Wow. That's very nice. And. Um, of my audience, 40% are from the US. And they have actually contacted me, mainly people from institutional hedge funds, private equity funds, mm. uh, or entrepreneurs who want to bring their companies to Asia. Wow. So it gives me a lot of indirect access to my, to my audience, uh, or even people who are doing industrial analysis on Asia for their companies in the US. So that's one of the demographic group. Um, through distributing my content, I've recently gained 10% each in China and India. Mm. And of course, the rest is distributed across the more developed cities, which is Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, Australia, and UK. I also have about 5 to 10% listeners from Europe. Mm. Yeah, and I know who they are. So that, that's the most interesting part. So, so how do you track your, your data? Is it uh, like when you say 15,000 subscribers, mm-hmm. is that on iTunes or across the, the, the different? Across the different channels. Uh, across see. the different channels. And I use mailing lists as a form of uh, tracking. Oh, okay. Because that's the, that's the only one that you know you have an email, right? Right, sure. So that's, that's the best way to, to actually put that subscriber on the list. 
Okay. So, but okay. So, but if someone like, let's say, I just go on your site, mm. Analyze Asia, and I I listen to an episode, mm. or if I go on iTunes, there's a way to. Yeah. Is there a way to track that? Um, there is a way to track, uh, depending on the hosting solution you use. Right. Right. So there is a story behind that actually. So um, during I I I was actually using archive.org, which is free. And subsequently, thanks to one of my guests from the U.S., who happened to be a very famous uh, CTO, of, uh, he's the former CTO of Microsoft, which is uh, Ray Ozzy. <laughs> wow. He, uh, I actually got a hosting for my podcast. I use Blueberry. Some people mm-hmm. use uh, LipSync. LipSync. So yeah. they will actually give you interesting analytics. For example, your downloads, your unique downloads, and also right. uh, where is it from? One of the interesting data points I thought I should share is ninety-five percent of my audience actually coming from uh, Apple products. Right. That means they're either using iTunes, right, or they're using iOS. Right. Yeah. Very little is from Android. Yeah. I, f- I found that to be, I mean, that's, that's generally the stat in the U.S., uh, you at the U.S. being the largest uh, sort of podcast consumer consumption market. And, you know, uh, it, it was like it, over 80% is, is iTunes. Yeah. So actually, because there was nobody in Asia that I could actually compete with, so I used the U.S. podcast as my base to compete. Mm. So in doing that, it actually helped me to be better. Sure, yeah. absolutely. Competing with the best, Yeah, right? competing with the best, but I don't think I've reached the kind of numbers that they do, but I'm still trying. But I think- No, no, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's very interesting though. Like you say that 40% of your listenership is from, from the US and, and the types that are, are reaching out to you is quite interesting. You know, I mean, they, they're definitely, it's basically, it's, it's testament to what you're doing because they want some uh, on the ground research and information and color and that's exactly what you're providing them right Mm, that's right very interesting okay um well thank you for sharing that i appreciate that bernard and um you know i'm i'm sure i'll be asking for your advice in the future since you're uh more much more seasoned at the podcasting game than i am so uh just a few more questions uh again i I really appreciate your time and, and taking the time here so what uh what sort of goals do you have uh for 2017 where do you see um you know things going are you going to keep you know pushing out on analyze asia is there any other ventures that you're going to uh explore Mm, i guess for 2017 i just want to i decided this year that i have no resolutions Mm. but i'm going to let my action do the talking okay but I've also, um, one of the things I've been doing, which is which comes to your point about uh, something that I like about your podcast is you talk about all this about your daily habits. So one of the things that I want to do is to make sure that my daily habits and rituals are intact. Mm. So I can tell you, I can share some of them. One of them is to read a book for 30 minutes each day. Very good. Yep. And one minute of zoning out where you just breathe and meditate in a mindful way. Mm. So, so that's one of the things that I have been striving to do almost every day. And, yeah. and the thing that why it inspired me to do that is also because I like the Japanese concept of the shokunin where you work as a craftsman to get yourself better by practicing each day and iterating mm. on top of yourself right. and that actually helps me in terms of stress management was probably the best thing that ever happened to me one thing that I used to love to do was to be able to take long walks but um, because of a lot of my work commitments these days I couldn't actually do that but one the other thing I thought I've done recently is actually to wake up and work in early mornings. Mm-hmm. It seems to be very crea- my most creative time. And 
Um, typically, my emails are sent out at 4.30 a.m. And I'm also inbox zero <laughs> person, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, when I need to really unwind and totally take something off my mind, I'll just go and play a co-op game in StarCraft 2. <laughs> nice. Yeah, play a strategy game because it just helps me to think. Yeah. Be away. It's like your chess, that. right? Like you know. Yeah, it's like a chess to yep. me, basically. Yep. So you, you, you do that. So, so these habits, I want to sort of keep them and making sure that they work. And as for Analyze Asia, I guess um, I have some plans in taking it to the next stage, which I will talk about it probably in about two to three months' time. Excellent. Yeah. We'll have to have you back on in a few months so you can uh, give us the big reveal. One last quick question. You were speaking about Inbox Zero, and I, I love that because it, it actually sounds like we have some of the very similar uh, habits. You know, I'm a very, very much so a morning person. I exercise in the morning. It is absolutely the time in, during the day where my mind is the clearest and I am the most productive. I also am known to send out emails at 4, 4.30 in the morning. Uh, and, you know, I also do some podcasting in the morning as well. What productivity tools, if any, do you use? Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned Google Docs in the past and Asana. Any other good tools that you might want to recommend to listeners? Mm, actually, um, for tracking, I actually like to use my Apple Watch. For okay, meditation, right. for the one minute, I use something called Headspace. Headspace, yep. Yeah. That's a good one. I've used that before. I have yet to try the Muse, but I actually have the, the, the equipment, but I haven't had the time to actually open it and test it. So I'm actually going to get to get myself on that pretty soon. Mm. Okay, great. Interesting. Um, all right, great. Thank you so much, Bernard. Um, I guess the last question is, where can people find you, follow you, and connect with you? Um, as per always, what I say on the podcast, you can find me at blongcw at Twitter. I actually respond most of the time, or at bernardleong.com. Or you can actually subscribe to my podcast, Analyze Asia, uh, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E dot Asia. And you can find me on any of the distribution points, for example, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, TuneIn, and even Google Play, but for the US. So, um, yeah, feel free to reach out. And yeah, I'm happy to Excellent. be of help to other podcasters yeah. as well. It's good that you're actually doing podcasts because one of the biggest difficulty for uh, podcasters in Asia to actually have a bigger market access is actually the ability to guess uh, star in other people's shows, which one of That's the right. which is one of the success factors for a lot of US podcasts because they are able to go to each other's shows to actually cross promote. So I mean, I, I love your effort and I think you should continue. Absolutely, and I'm I'm glad and I'm thankful that you're you're uh, you're open to uh, to helping me out and likewise I will try to do everything I can to help you. To anyone that's listening, please go over and subscribe to Analyze Asia. I've actually listened to it myself. Um, you know, Bernard has hundred and how, what? How many episodes do you have now? Hundred forty-five. Hundred and sixty-five. So there's plenty of content there. He's a seasoned podcaster, pretty much the pioneer in Asia. So go over and subscribe to Analyze Asia. Thank you again, uh, Bernard. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week.
This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under three hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.